Whether organizing projects, working from home, or conducting business, you need to use many necessary apps and cloud services to accomplish your job. Despite those apps being necessary, switching between them and keeping them interconnected and updated and synced is a major challenge. Business and productivity apps can very easily become disorganized, which makes using them less efficient. The company ClickUp solves this problem by providing a platform that uses everything a business needs to efficiently operate all in one place. ClickUp uses a unique hierarchy to see the big picture without missing details and offers everything from docs to tasks to imports and integrations. With everything in one place and easily searchable and organized, ClickUp makes work much easier. In this episode, we talk to Zeb Evans, founder and CEO of ClickUp. Zeb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's 2021 and ClickUp is everywhere. Why are you on all my billboards, all the buses, all the sidewalks? ClickUp has become ubiquitous. Why is that happening? <laughs> I think, you know, from the outside, it may seem a little bit unsustainable. And, and as far as marketing, you could unit economics go. But the reality is you, you can track some things with billboards and brand awareness is the most important one. And also it's, it's really the only practical one to track consistently. And so for us, out of home advertising is certainly a brand awareness play. We're younger and relative to our competitors in the space, you know, we're, we're a little bit less than four years and most of our big competitors are eight plus. And so for that reason, you know, we've, we've got to be aggressive on the out of home play to, to keep keep coming up in those brand conversations. So why is it that some products make a lot of sense to do aggressive brand awareness advertising and other products, it makes no sense. So for example, I don't see as much advertising for Notion, right? Why is ClickUp make more sense to advertise aggressively than Notion? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't understand their strategy in, in particular. So I'm not I'm not on the inside there. But you know, what I can say holistically is that when you're when you're in a category that has a huge total addressable market and you're not have this targeting a very specific type of user or a very specific persona then brand awareness generally can, can can make sense. I think you also, something to be mindful of is if it's a competitive space. Of course, brand awareness can also make sense there. The product you guys are building, a essentially it's a project management tool or a suite of project management tools. We've seen this category before, but you guys, I, I think that you guys are a case of one of these categories where it gets reinvented every n years, and the the team that reinvents it is the team that ten x is the category. And I feel like ClickUp is the ten x productivity system. And I'm saying that as somebody who uses ClickUp within well, we use it at least within one of our companies, which is Supercompute. We don't have a lot of project management tooling yet because we're just doing mostly everything in Slack. But it feels like once we get to a large enough team, we're going to have to do ClickUp or have to do some project management tool. ClickUp basically feels like the only one that is not super slow. I don't even know what other features we might need, but it's the only one that's not super slow other than Trello, and Trello is just the same product that it was 15 years ago. So by process of elimination, you're the only one, I guess? <laughs> other than maybe maybe Clubhouse. Other than maybe Clubhouse. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, we've we've done a lot of things, and and it's been a work in progress for sure. So it didn't it didn't start like that since day one. But when you're releasing a ton of features really quickly, of course, you can that can lead to to bloat on both the product side, just from a user experience perspective, but it also can lead to bloat on you know that technical side. And so our you know, and we did have this about about a year ago, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. And what I did was go out and I found a bunch of engineers that built Angular, our, our front end architecture. And so they were kind of on that core core Angular team, and we were already using the best practices there. We just needed stuff that was going to work better. And and so I'm very very happy they're they're still with us today. And and their only initiative is is speed. You guys are Angular. Yeah, I thought you were React. Mm. Wow, I, I totally misremember our last conversation. Was there a decision there or you were just, you were before, you were pre-React, you started when Angular was the hotness and I guess you just have gone from there. Exactly. We, we started when there wasn't really a kind of a clear winner there and, you know, Angular 2 just came out. So it was that, you know, that, that renewed sense of Angular and we jumped on that train. Has there been any penalty for that? Because React has been the preeminent front-end framework for probably the last five years. Do you feel like you miss out on some of the network effects? Yes and no. I mean, certainly when you think about things like libraries, that availability and, and the maintenance of them is, is not the same as React is today. The community is, is just different. But at the same time, we've been able to really find the best, the world's best Angular engineers. Whereas, you know, React, it's, it's much harder to, to do that. But there's, there's not that many of examples of really large scale Angular apps that are used, you know, by millions of users outside of Google themselves. And, and so it's been kind of a blessing in disguise being able to hire people and find the people that really want to solve those problems and make a great example of what Angular can be. The design of ClickUp feels sort of like an operating system in the browser. You have the vocabulary of an operating system, of installing apps, and it it almost feels like you could become an operating system eventually. Are you... Are you thinking like that or maybe silently or or non-candidly thinking like that? Or are you just completely focused on being a productivity system? It's a great question. I think there's, there is definitely a long-term play at ClickUp where we do want to do everything associated with your work at the end of at the end of our vision that we want to be what Salesforce is to sales. Like ClickUp is synonymous with work. We think of work, you think of ClickUp, vice, vice versa. And so in some ways, yes. And, you know, I think that we have a, a lot of opportunities still to, to expand into other product categories and to also just capture a, a larger audience that hasn't really been brought into the productivity system today. Do you have any idea why Slack sold? You know, I think that there is, we've tried hiring people from Slack and I will say this as, as nice as, as I can is, is we, we haven't found the, the best people there that were, that were there. I think largely you have this hierarchy of, of hiring, this hierarchy of decision-making. And, you know, when you don't put the best people in the top of the places, they don't hire the best people below them. And so I think when you start thinking about from, you know, a product perspective and decision-making perspective, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, Stuart kept making the decisions on, but that our understanding is, you know, product would have ideas and they would, you know, come get 
kind of side railed every six months or so, and then not really being able to, to ship things. We've also heard the story on the product side of, you know, signing large customers that become a huge percentage of your revenue. I think that IBM story is, is one of those where, you know, you have several hundred thousand users overnight coming into your platform. You now have to listen to them and you've got to build features for them. And so honestly, I think Slack just dropped the ball. I think they had a huge opportunity, you know, to be a hundred billion dollar plus company and, and really redefine the work category. And they didn't. It's crazy. I'm using Slack all day, every day at this point. It's essentially replaced Facebook as my social network of choice. I assume y'all are not using Slack. Y'all are all in on ClickUp? So we actually do use Slack. Um, so our, our perspective right now, as far as ClickUp's chat goes, is that it's great for you know zero to 50 teams, zero to 50 size person teams. Outside of that, we think that our, our chat features and tra- just transparently are not there yet in a place that can, can replace something like Slack or Microsoft Teams for, for larger teams. But what I'm getting to is that we've been, we've been working on this for the past six months or so. And so I think we've, we've actually built something that in my opinion is, is better than Slack. It's more prioritized than Slack. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit opportunity for, for, like, if you're being mentioned in a channel in Slack, like, that's higher priority than all of the other noise that's going on in Slack. And so we've kind of built a new, a new chat experience that I would say it's more like an inbox mixed with Slack, but that it prioritizes your conversations more efficiently. And so we actually did just start start using this internally, kind of testing it in, in the beta a, a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, I, I hope we'll release this in the next two or three months. I think the hardest thing, if you're trying to rebuild everything from Slack, I don't actually think it's that hard. The hardest thing is probably going to be reliability and speed, right? Their infrastructure feels totally reliable. I, I can, I feel like I can trust Slack almost as much as I can trust Apple. And that's really hard to get to. And I've done, I've done some shows about Slack infrastructure. They have some, some serious, serious engineering work that's gone into that product. And it's, it, that, that I feel is going to be the hardest thing to replicate. It will be. There are services out there, you know, that have have done a good job of it. Of it, and we've looked at those services, and we have decided to do it ourselves. I think that you know, when you think about the problems, and you've seen the problems that have happened, and you talk to the engineers that had those problems at, at Slack and experienced that stuff, you largely can can try to avoid those those missteps early on. At least you you can can navigate around you know what they did versus what what you're doing. And so I, I'm optimistic about it for sure. But I'm I'm sure we you know I'm sure we'll have problems, and it's just about how how fast can you fix those problems do you guys use voice chats much like uh it's slack voice chats we don't we just started i think they call it the, the huddle feature um yeah, i just started yeah. started kind of testing it out it, i want to but i just haven't really found practical uses for it yet that's the thing it's really good for impractical uses so we we, we become power users basically we're using it all the time yeah people are just hopping into huddles and just forming little voice communities on the fly. It's, it feels, honestly, it feels like the future. As somebody who's been doing podcasting for six years, I'm now, to be honest, I hate to say this, I'm really not even listening to podcasts anymore. I found something that I enjoy listening to even more than the All In podcast, to be honest. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a very big statement. It is. Because ultimately, Zoom is too big and bloated, right? You don't really want to hop on a Zoom call every single time you want to just have an informal voice chat. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to like asynchronous versus synchronous communication, right? And and so they're kind of adding that synchronous communication by adding adding that voice feature and that huddle feature. And so I, I think it also is is something to be said about replacing kind of that you know work chat that would normally happen where you're around other people and you hear that you know thing that you want to talk about, but you you weren't necessarily part of that conversation and you're you're now able to join. So I think as we we continue to that remote work era, the new era of remote work these types of things will become a lot more prevalent. Hey, I got an idea for something we could collaborate on. We should do a Zoom competitor. We should do open source Zoom. You know, I think Zoom's a perfect example of a company that, and and in a competitive space, that doesn't have the best user experience, right? I I would say bad bad user experience. Understood. But they, (laughs) horrible user experience, but they won on performance, right? They they won on reliability. I dis- I actually disagree. I actually disagree. Sorry, sorry. But continue. Continue. Let me hear your thesis first. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I th- I think that it's it's really the only one that worked every single time. And so when you started using, I mean, we have story after story of people that were using Google Hangouts. Right? It's easy. It's in the browser. It's great user experience. But it wasn't reliable. You're always going to have problems. Whereas with Zoom, it works worldwide, wherever you are, how no matter how many people you have in, in the Zoom chat. And so I largely believe that is the reason you know that they're able to own the category is that performance. If you're Google, all you have to do is build a client. Just build a desktop client and you get so much more traction with Hangouts. I don't know why they haven't done that yet. I have no idea. I have no idea. I think that like, Google is is you know a mystery as far as their product decisions goes and what they, they try to spend time on and then pull the, pull the plug on. So your so, guess is as good as mine. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can do. We can spin up a small team. I'll get a couple engineers on this. You get a couple engineers on this. We do open source Zoom and we use, uh, have you seen daily.co? No. Daily.com is an API for, for uh, streaming video. So we can just use that. It's a very, very highly reliable. It's as reliable as Zoom. So when you do your doctor's appointment or your, veter- your uh, veterinarian appointment through telemedicine, you can just use daily. It's, it's just an API and it's as, as reliable as Zoom. I don't think anybody really wants to be using Zoom because it's kind of owned by a, you know, a foreign entity, right? Nobody, nobody really wants all of our communications going through a foreign entity, I don't think. How do you know daily is, is as reliable as Zoom? I guess I don't, other than the fact that Tiger just invested in them, and I've talked to enough people who say it's pretty much bulletproof. They started out actually as a company called Pluot, I think. Pluot was, was, a, was a video streaming thing much like Zoom. I think they, they may or may not have had a client for whatever reason, that client did not catch on like Zoom did. Maybe it didn't have quite the go-to-market savvy or the aggression that Zoom did. Zoom was just a very aggressive company in so many different ways. But Zoom has already broken trust with all their users, right? They, they spin up servers on your computer in very strange and unpredictable ways. They have all kinds of security vulnerabilities. And this thing is like used for core communications infrastructure. They've already broken user trust. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of as... Um, you know, as, as trusted as Facebook, to be honest, which is to say not very. That's very fair. A very fair point. But I think the reality is that, you know, you, you think about crossing the chasm and there, there really is, is certain isolated examples of companies that get to that point where they really cross the chasm and they own the industry because the brand, the brand owns, owns everything. And so when you're, you know, like let's say you're communicating with a customer or a client and you're getting on a Zoom call with them. And if you don't send them a Zoom call, 
your perception is what are you doing, right? Why you're not professional. You're not, you're not using zoom. Why aren't you using zoom? You're making me use another application. And so I think that's going to be the biggest hurdle. All right. So I know you got that hundred million dollars. You give us 500 K we'll get you open. We'll get you open source zoom within three months. You can integrate it tightly with ClickUp. I know you need you need a video communication system, of course, right? We do. We we were looking at using some of those as a service providers actually for it, and so I'm I'm you know I'm interested to look into to daily as well because there's there's a few out there. Amazon's obviously you know they've got their own as well. Oh come on, Chime. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually that's what <laughs> you're not that's what Slack uses. That's what Slack uses. Oh, Slack uses Chime. Yeah. Right, 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 right. I remember this. Yeah, but but Slack. I mean, talk about broken trust. They introduced you know video calls and voice calls, whatever, three or four years ago, and it was terrible, and everybody stopped using it because it was so bad. And now nobody will ever trust it again. Yeah, so they have to have it has to have, be reliable at this point, and I think largely Huddle is is known as being being reliable. Huddle's super reliable. Yeah, but yeah, let's let's do it. I'll try it. I'm down. All right. We can think about that. But yeah, I mean, really, like how... So you, you guys have a desktop client, right? For ClickUp? It's a big, big Electron app. Could you just... Can you just bundle in... I guess you can just bundle in voice and video just like just like Slack does, right? Yeah, definitely. We definitely definitely could. I think that, again, it's it, the hardest part there is that infrastructure side, just like you're mentioning. And so if you're using it as a service provider for, for infrastructure, you know, it, it can be done relatively easily. Have you guys thought about moving aggressively into open source? No, not really. We, we certainly have open source some of the things that we, we created. You know, we use Flutter. We, we love Flutter and lots really? of the things that we, we needed weren't out there. So we started, uh, we started open sourcing some of that stuff. But as, as an ecosystem, not so much. My little brother really likes Flutter and he's, all, he's building his, uh, he's got a quantified self app that he's building in Flutter. And every time I look at his computer, he's got 5,000 build errors <laughs> in a console. <laughs> we love it. We really do love it. We made that decision to, to rewrite our, our mobile apps in Flutter and it's, it's been awesome. It really, it really has been. The other benefit to Flutter, I mean, it is truly cross-platform. So you eventually will have native desktop apps that, that are built in, in Flutter as well. So largely what you build on mobile can be used elsewhere. Flutter, for those who don't know, a cross-platform framework written in Dart, I believe, that compiles or transpiles to the uh, it transpiles to ARM code, I think. So it so it uh, it executes against your like your native graphics card or something. It executes at a super low level, which is arguably kind of the same thing React Native is doing. It, it's a, it's a it feels like a little bit uh, weird. And um, I don't know, potentially insecure, but maybe not. That's that's a pretty bleeding edge choice. That's a pretty bleeding edge decision to make. And it's very interesting that it's so performant. I have used it. I have used your mobile app. The I've never had a performance issue. I did. I think I emailed you. You may not have understood this email that I sent you, but was, there's a minor layout error that I encountered where I could not access a certain part of the UI that I needed to access that just felt like a, you know, kind of a, You've got a very expansive app that's going to happen sometimes, but have you, I mean, are there any like workflow problems that have developed as a, as a result of going with Flutter? I think the only limitation with Flutter is that there's not as many libraries as you would find. Like the, the community is, is actually very large and, and it's the fastest growing to my understanding, 
But the, the ecosystem of, of libraries and people that have solved those problems before doesn't exist in the way that, you know, another kind of technology would or even just native like Swift. And so I think that's, that's the only hurdle there. Otherwise, everybody really loves working on it. And you get so much efficiency from, you know, being single code base for both Android and iOS um, that those bottlenecks, those hurdles that we have to jump over are fun problems to solve. And, and they're net positive for the amount of time that we save. Not to make a, a sudden shift in topics, but during our, our last show, when we uh, recorded in person, at the end of our, our conversation, tell me if, if you're not comfortable talking about this on air, it's, that's totally fine. But you you mentioned that that you kind of had like a transformational set of experiences that led to you being able to do ClickUp and do what you're doing in such a differentiated manner. And the, the conversation, we had a very brief conversation right before you left, and well, not on air. And uh, it really stuck with me. I, I really mean that. Do you think you can kind of like uh, condense what you were what you were saying and just yeah? I know I'd, I'd love to hear kind of your philosophy and 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 what you're yeah what you explained to me. Yeah, so I, I imagine we're talking about my near death experiences. Yeah, and, and like and like going to Tony Robbins. Yeah, so so I, I think that largely I have this huge urgency to everything that we're doing. Life is, is short, you know. We we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So I've I've had four near death experiences, and each of those have led me in some way to click up. Right? Obviously, you know, Steve Jobs always said you can't connect the dots looking forward, and certainly that is very true. But I think when you when you have you know adversity and, and life events happen, you can always you can always choose to make positive out of them, or you can choose to make negative out, out of them. And so for me, I always see it as a sign. And the the last one that I had was was a few years ago. I was actually right before I started ClickUp, and I had a before this I had a social media company where we were doing like basically hacky things for for giving you reporting on social media, allowing, we're doing social media management for celebrities, things like that. And I realized that we were really only contributing to people's egos on social media. We weren't actually adding net positive value for the world. And so that that next week, I, I we, we shut down, I always say exited, but then everybody thinks that means we sold it. So we literally just sh- shut it down. We paid everybody for six months, but we shut it down. I took a couple of people and we, we drove across the country. We were living in North Carolina and, and we, uh, we moved to pa- Palo Alto because I always wanted to to be in Silicon Valley. That was like my dream as a kid. And I get there and I'm expecting Vegas with startup lights. You know, I'm literally like expecting just startups everywhere. And I get to Palata, I'm like, what the hell? Like, where, where is Where are all the startups? And I literally found out that there is an ordinance in Palo Alto where you can't even put signs up. But it, it is what it is. And we got there and we were going to build a Craigslist competitor where you could pay in app and remove sketchiness from Craigslist and essentially have a review system, a verification system. And still nobody's done this. I still don't know why. If nobody's done this in like two or three years, even after people have heard this, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and, and, and re- resolve that. OfferUp is kind of an example there, hmm. but they still don't do in-app payments. They haven't solved like the last mile Fa- delivery face- problem. Facebook Marketplace? Facebook Marketplace. Do they do in-app payments? I think so. I think Facebook Marketplace is the closest thing to what you're describing, but ultimately it's Facebook, so ne- so never mind. Yeah, you start to see, like, I think OfferUp like, made a better Craigslist with, as far as user experience goes, right? Better user experience, but still hasn't solved like that delivery problem and, and the payments problem. But yeah, maybe Facebook market. I don't use Facebook, so maybe maybe they do. You know, what's what's interesting is how good, have you used the Uber courier service, the Uber courier system? I think they have an API. So I think that is, that's kind of a key, a key missing piece for the Craigslist style thing where you can just have fulfillment now. Fulfill, fulfillment is a service. 
I think you can build that. But anyway, sorry, continue. And I know DoorDash used to have something like that too. I don't know if they deprecated, but a lot, when we were actually looking at doing this a few years ago, they did have an API for that too. So there was a way to do it. There's a way to do it. But yeah, no, the, I mean, the point I'm getting to, you know, is, was that each of those times as experiences led to, to what we, we created ClickUp for and where we are today. But largely, I do have this, this urgency to everything that we're doing. And I think that you know, transpires itself to the entire company. And I also think that's why we take these big bets and we're very aggressive and we don't build software in the normal way where, you know, choose one thing, do it well, choose a vertical, do that well. Go to market is is very unique at ClickUp. We go to market with, with, with everybody for everything rather than choosing specific verticals. And we're largely very reactive. And so I, I think that that is a result of, you know, all of those, those four near-death experiences I have. As far as Tony Robbins goes, though, that's, that, that was a transformable piece in my life also, because I had always had narcolepsy. And so I was that kid that was sleeping like 12 hours a day. It was, it's not the narcolepsy where you just fall asleep randomly. That's actually not a common form of nar- narcolepsy, but the simplest way to describe it is just you're always chronic, chronic fatigue, that type of narcolepsy. And so I went to Tony Robbins and there are these few events that led me to try and do some of his, his kind of sleep hacking stuff. And I did, and I ended up sleeping only four hours a night for, and I did that for, for a few years. And that, believe it or not, was like one of the things that solved my narcolepsy, sleeping less actually helped me sleep more today. I sleep five and a half hours if four, four wasn't enough for me anymore. So I do five and a half and that's kind of like my perfect amount. But I always tell everybody, like there is a ton of data to suggest, you know, that seven hours is a good time to, to sleep a good amount to sleep. But it doesn't take into account the exceptions and, and the anomalies to people. And so everybody's different and you just kind of have to find out what, what works for you. I wouldn't recommend that for everybody. Well, I'll, uh, I'll double down on your minor controversial statement. I feel like if you're enthusiastic about what you're doing, you can sleep less. You can get by with less sleep. It's ri- you're getting into a risky zone. You're getting into like a red zone. Because if, if you really start to, to burn the candle at both ends, you can get into some super dangerous territory. But... I have found that, myself included, a lot of people I know, if they're happy in life, if they're reasonably healthy, if they're very enthusiastic about what they're working on, they're just sleeping less. Exactly. And look, I mean, everybody wants to talk about work-life balance nowadays. But sorry, sorry. And and on the inverse, what I'll say is during the pandemic, I went through a phase where I was extraordinarily depressed. And I went through a um, a near-death experience myself uh, during the pandemic, which has led to, to actually, you know, some success you know, that's probably, you know, somewhat, you know, the same kind of vibe that you're describing. But, um, you know, when I've been depressed, I've slept way, way, way more. Yeah, we've, we've heard that a lot from from employees and people, you know, that were really struggling with with the pandemic. And, you know, largely, we've always wanted ClickUp to be this place where you can disconnect from all the negativity in, in the outside world. Talking about the, the company that, that, you know, as far as internally and employees go. So we tried to we tried to create an atmosphere, you know, where you come to work at ClickUp and it's all about work here. And, you know, we aren't focusing on all the negativity around coronavirus and, and things like that. And it's kind of it's kind of been our, our safe haven largely. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we have to deal with a lot of a lot of the problems that are, are existing from, you know, from other things outside of just the virus itself, right? Things like lockdowns that, you know, really have, have kept everybody inside and I think created a, a lot of emotional problems for, for children, but also even for, for adults. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's a struggle. It really is. Your lead investor, Kraft, David Sachs, there was a, a podcast, an all-in podcast uh, fairly recently where he had a, a a short, maybe diatribe is not the right word, but maybe call to action about 
why startups really are the answer to a lot of societal problems because it allows you to get out the creative energy that people have, the ability to work together that people have, the com- competitive notions that people have. Humans are competitive animals. We need to compete on some axis and pretty much the most productive competitive axes are sports and startups, arguably. It really is. And and honestly, I, just, I, I see a lot of friends who are in various worlds, be it uh, medicine or academia or law or finance, these zones that are non-startup zones. And frankly, they just seem less happy. They seem less fulfilled. And it resonates with my, my personal experience too. That that really you 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 know from a from a mental health standpoint, more people should be doing startups. I a thousand percent agree. But life life is about growth for for me, and I think largely for a lot of people. You can broadcast this on is that life is about growth, and and happiness comes from growth also, not just growth in you know your business or growth in your in your work life, but growth in your relationships, growth in, in your health, growth in, in your personal life. And so if you if you subscribe to that philosophy, startups are certainly the best way to grow. Doesn't always mean that they're going to be successful and, and everybody knows that they're not, but you still grow a lot during them more than you would grow in any other job. You're making decisions that you're having a huge impact in, in startups. And when you look holistically around the world, you know, a, a large majority of creativity came from this country, right? And so we, if we, we, we have to keep that lens in sight too, is, is when you look around, things that were invented, things that were created, a, a huge majority of things were created here. And it's not because we're smarter than everybody else, right? It's, it's, it has nothing to do with it. It's just that we enabled a society where we rewarded people who created things and who built things and we supported it and enabled them to build more things. And we have to, we have to get back to that and really really focus on on building. I'd love to know a little bit about that round, the $100 million. That was a Series A, right? Series B, actually. Series B, okay. Yep. I, y'all had a Series A? What was a Series A? Who? Yeah, see, the A was uh, $35 million. It was the same investors. It was Kraft in Georgia. Oh, it was also Kraft. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So if I recall, there were a lot of investors that were beating down your door trying to get into ClickUp because... Y'all were growing like a weed, and you had the name Mango Technologies, which is a great name. You know, easy inv- easy investment there. Why did you go with Kraft when you turned down a bunch of other people before that? I had never found an investor that I loved until I met David Sachs. Right, and everyone says, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna get on board with an investor, you need to find somebody that you would be in a lifelong relationship with, right? Like kind of like a marriage. And I really just hadn't found investors that I really loved. You know, they hadn't been on the other side of the aisle. They hadn't created their own businesses before. I think more so than that, it was philosophically aligned. We're, we're, we're very philosophically aligned, you know. And and I think you have to have that with with an investor. And, and so he, you know, kind of flipped my my mindset in, in raising funds. I also was very naive when it come, came to unit economics. So I think you know, when you think about really unsustainable valuations or you know a, a aggressive spending on on marketing, if you understand unit economics, it's actually not that way. You can actually you, you can still spend a lot but be sustainable. Um, and when you have really high net retention, like things like that, that stuff matters. And so I was kind of a perfect storm of of understanding that raising capital could help us grow faster and still do it sustainably. 
along with finding a partner that we're, we're very aligned with and that we love working with. That was the reason that, you know, we chose to raise. Yeah, I don't get the style of a lot of these VCs where they're at a fundamental level adversarial towards entrepreneurs. It almost seems like even the the dinosaurs that are that are lauded as the most uh, esteemed venture capital firms, they are actively antagonistic towards entrepreneurs. It's the weirdest thing in the world. And they, you know, the the thing that they're doing with with me as we're pitching these with these businesses, we've we've raised uh, you know money for 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 two different businesses, but in each of these cases, we have these investors that we encounter, and they always say. Yeah, look, it's it's uh, it's too early for us, but please come back in a few weeks or a few months or whatever when you have more traction. And it's just so clear that that was going to be their answer from day one. They just want the optionality. And it's frustrating because they build themselves as these entrepreneur-friendly venues, and they're not. They're, they waste your time. They are ultimately trying to screw you. And it's like, if that's the position you're going to take, then we're just going to go with well, first of all, like Kraft is doing it right. I honestly feel that Kraft is doing it. Kraft is doing it right because they're not adversarial. They seem to be fairly straight shooters. But like, if you're not going to go with Kraft, you're just going to go with like the person who's going to give you the highest valuation, give you the most money. You're going to go with the Tiger. You're going to go with the SoftBank because why wouldn't you? It's undifferentiated capital. It's either you take the undifferentiated capital or you take the teams that are actively trying to screw you. So you're probably going to take the undifferentiated capital. I, like I, I 100% agree with you, and I, you know I can't tell you how many times you talk to investors and they'll never give you a no. Nobody ever, ever, ever says no. It's because like they don't want to lose. So if you go out and you're successful and you raise from somewhere else, they're not like, oh, we rejected them, you know, and 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 that's on our, our a mark of shame on our side. They don't want to tell you no. And so if it's not a yes, it's a no. That's what you have to understand about venture capital. Is is again, if it's not if they're not telling you yes immediately. It is a no, and they're not. They're not going to tell you tell you that stuff. I mean, Kraft is is a complete straight shooter, and you know I, I admire them in, in so many ways, and they're incredible people to work with. Their whole company, and so I am a hundred percent advocate for for Kraft, and and it's it's hard to find you know companies like Kraft in in today's age. What is the hardest problem you're dealing with these days? I think it changes from week to week. It, it's always something where you have to be really reactive with problems. Something that I, w- I will say is, is you know, th- there are things that you just don't anticipate as, as an entrepreneur when you're focusing on certain pieces of the business, things like legal. You know, we get cease and desist from competitors, from, from normal, just random companies all the time. You, you, you just always, as you start becoming successful, you're always going to have legal problems. And so, you know, now our focus is on building out more of a legal department. We've got a couple lawyers, but now you have sales agreements all day. And those things have to be handled by a lawyer. And you would just, that time adds up and actually legal becomes one of the biggest bottlenecks in sales. And I had no idea this would happen. So a lot of this stuff you just can't predict. And, and you get there and you see, well, our salespeople now, they're taking three or four days to review an agreement. It's delaying our sales and it's prolonging our, our cycles. And so now we have to go out and we're, we're hiring more legal right now. I think engineering also you know, has, has been a focus of mine the past few months where we didn't have... Uh, an engineering leader. You know, my, my CTO is, is is incredible and, and is kind of that engineering leader and a brilliant architect mastermind, but we haven't had that person that's done it before, right? The person that's built those, you know, 500 person plus engineering orgs before. And so, you know, I, I can't say say who that is today, but we, we do have somebody starting uh, next week and we're, we're super excited to have somebody that we can build around and really scale to a legendary engineering organization. 
All right, I'm not trying to flatter you at all with this statement, but when I interviewed you and your co-founder, I I got such a mind meld vibe from you guys. It very much felt like a Wozniak and Jobs of productivity kind of thing. But that's is that the right analogy? What's the closest analogy to you guys? Or is it like John Lennon and Paul McCartney or something? <laughs> Look, I, I'm a Jobs person, so I, I love the Jobs Wozniak one for sure. I, I'll, I'll never, I'll you, never you, reject I, that. I like, I like that you you do you do you do the opposite thing with the clothing though. You're just like way more colorful and uh, adventurous with the clothing. Yeah, I have I've developed this like personal brand for my shirts, and I won't tell anybody where I where I get them from. It's kind of like it's a it's a trade secret. <laughs> you guys do have to do apparel eventually, right? I would love to do apparel. Yeah, I, I would absolutely love. If, we, if there's any any clothing designers out there that like bright colors, hit me up. So, but but seriously, on the so on the the legal thing is kind of interesting. You know, that sounds like kind of a workflow problem, and I can imagine that for each sales contract, it, like let's say you you like like let's say ClickUp sells to Tesla, which is a reality. If you do it, let's say you you let's say. Uh, ClickUp didn't exist, or let's say uh, you didn't have a deal with Tesla quite yet, and you just did, you were doing a deal with Tesla today. Tesla's gigantic, ClickUp's gigantic. That's going to be a really, really complicated workflow. If you're trying to manage that in ClickUp, what's the best tool set for that workflow? Yeah, I mean, you still need a contract v- vendor platform of, of of some kind where you're so handling DocuSign. contracts. Yeah, some type of, of DocuSign. There's, you know, Ironclad is is another one that's I think more streamlined for for sales agreements and for workflows around around that. But DocuSign certainly is is a big player there. And by the way, that I I think that this this part of the industry is is right for somebody to come in and and really disrupt. There isn't a great way for lawyers to collaborate. The lawyers generally, they're going to go through one piece of, of a sentence and they're going to want to change one thing about it. And, and that thing, you know, maybe they do that several times within a document. Those things are not unique. It's not, it's not like you, you'll ever see anything that is different from what you saw four weeks ago. It's all very, very similar stuff. And so I almost think that, you know, if you, if you had a template that had all of the possible permutations there. And you as a company are able to say, we'll accept this one, but wouldn't accept this one. We'd accept this one, but probably not accept this one. Or maybe this one needs to get flagged for manual approval. You could have this kind of self-service style thing where lawyers would be able to go in there and say, nope, this is a hard line for us. This one isn't. And you could kind of automatically accept agreements or not, because it is a huge, huge, huge time sink. I mean, you're talking you know, several hours for, for each lawyer over the course of a full contract, assuming that they're making changes. We only got nine minutes left, so I'm going to uh, shift topics rapidly again. For people who have not gone through a near-death experience, how can they develop that immediacy of life? That's a really, really good question. Now, I think for me, meditation and, and mindfulness has has really helped me reset myself every single day. And so it's, it's a very cliche thing to, to say, but it, it really is true. If you can just even just sit for 15 minutes uh, without any distractions, and it's okay to think, just sit for 15 minutes and kind of reset yourself in the mornings every day. That has really, really, really helped me 
disconnect from all of the things going on in your head and even think about things that I wasn't thinking about in the right way before. Maybe, you know, maybe I was thinking of in a selfish way and I wasn't thinking about somebody else's perspective. And I realized that other person's perspective. So for me, meditation has, has helped a ton and just being, being more connected to everyday life and realizing that life is short. I think another thing, a really, really big thing is, is stoicism. I'm a huge stoic. I'm, I'm definitely into stoicism. There's, there's, there's one thing called negative visualization. And basically it's just saying, it's just trying to meditate on trying to think about you losing X, Y, and Z in your life, losing everything in your life. Right. So you could even meditate on, think about you just dying. Think about you, you know, losing your loved ones. Think about you losing your, your house that you value so much or losing your job or losing those things. It sounds counterintuitive to, to why would you want to think about that stuff, but it allows you to experience them and then be more grateful and more appreciative of what you do have today. And, and that has been very, very key in, in helping me stay connected and, and realizing, you know, that life is short. And so I think that that would be a great place to start. Yeah. And what do you do about the fact that during the pandemic, negative visualization didn't really work because it was already more negative than you could have even imagined? Turn off the news. <laughs> Don't watch the news, right? I, I think whenever, whenever I talk to people that have had you know, really bad problems during the pandemic, were they watching CNN, right? Were, were they watching the news? And I, I'm sorry, but if you turn on CNN at any time of the day, They've got a panel on the right side that is literally just telling you death statistics and up 100% this. And I'll be like, I can't imagine if you're watching that even for an hour a day, how much negatively it's, it's going, going to affect you. I mean, the, the reality is today that that coronavirus, unfortunately, is here for the rest of our lives. It is, it is not going away. It doesn't matter if 100% of people were to get vaccinated, which would never happen. The virus is always going to mutate and it, it is going to be here. So we really only have two choices. You know, we can stop living because of COVID or we can continue living around it. And so we have to make those, those choices.